have an unusual verse to begin with tonight. It's the writing of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8. And last of all, Jesus was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. I want to preach to you tonight on an unusual subject, but I think you'll see where we're going in a little while. Born wounded. Would you pray with Pastor one more time? So grateful to be here with everybody tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of opening your word. Thank you for the honor of addressing your people. And right now I'm praying that you would allow this to be more than a little talk. Little talks don't accomplish anything. Little sermons don't change lives. But Jesus, you're here by the power of your spirit. And I invite you to work in a miraculous way tonight. I invite you to speak into someone's life, someone's heart, someone's mind, someone's family, someone's home, and change everything. God, like only you can do, like we've seen you do thousands of times in so many places all over the world, and right here at CCC, we've seen you change lives. Jesus, you are the great I am. Be great among us tonight. Be great among your people. Receive our worship and our praise. Do what only you can do. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Before you even think about sitting down, would you just lift up your hands and your heart and your praise one more time to the Lord as we prepare to hear from his word tonight. I thank you. I worship you, Jesus. Oh, I give you praise. I thank you. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. He was born in Tarsus, which was a principal city of the Roman Empire of his day. The river Sidnus ran through the city into an artificial harbor, which just happened to be one of the engineering masterpieces of the ancient world. His city was the same spot where 40 years before his birth, Cleopatra had stepped ashore to meet Mark Antony. It was a busy city. It had the bustle of caravans constantly heading through the city and out to the world around through a, a crevice in the surrounding mountains, which was called the Cilician Gates, and it was another feat of ancient engineering. It was a spectacular place, Tarsus. His father was a master tent maker, and the family was independently wealthy. They held the coveted title in that day of citizens of Rome, which was seldom granted to anyone unless they'd paid a lot of money or rendered great services to the empire. Certainly that kind of a title was never given to Jewish people, but it had been to this family, and boy, they were proud of it, justly proud of this great distinction. His parents were Pharisees. They were fervent in Jewish nationalism, and they strictly obeyed every word of the law of Moses. Even the privilege of having Roman citizenship for them paled in comparison to being good Israelites. Now, Tarsus had its own university, 
But the son of a Pharisee would never be seen there, would never study all the pagan philosophies. So as a teenager, he was sent by sea to Palestine where he studied under a famous Jewish rabbi named Gamaliel. And it was there in the country of Israel where he learned both to expound the law, to teach the law, but also to prosecute people who broke the law. Because in his time, a rabbi was not only part preacher, they were part lawyer. And he excelled above all of his contemporaries. He was brilliant, he was sharp, and he loved the law of God. But before he could become a rabbi in Israel, he had to have a trade. He had to master a trade. So he left Jerusalem in his 20s somewhere, and he returned home to Tarsus, and he began to work in his family's tent-making business. It was roughly a decade later, give or take, when he returned to Jerusalem. And by then, something really strange had happened in Jerusalem. But by then, there were a lot of followers, hundreds of them everywhere, followers of a new prophet named Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, they were filling all of Israel with their teaching. There were claims of miracles and healings and all kinds of large crowds. And there was even one report circulating that this Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified, but then risen from the dead. It was really quite astounding. It was in Jerusalem that he met a young man about the same age as him. He was named Stephen. And age was the only thing they had in common because while this guy performed the honorable duties of a Pharisee, Stephen just wasted his time running errands, delivering food to widows. He was a, a deacon among all of those people that followed this Jesus. And, and he didn't like it very much, this Stephen. He, he didn't admire him at all. He thought he was kind of stupid to give his life, throw it away, waste it, following a myth. And Stephen, he was just the opposite. He preached constantly, even in the streets, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was more than a teacher or a rabbi or a preacher or a, even a miracle worker, that he was actually the Messiah of the Jews. And Well, he just considered Stephen's arguments nonsense. But he did recognize that this strange new sect, this weird little religious group, was probably dangerous. So secretly in his heart of hearts, when he heard in the streets of Jerusalem that Stephen had been arrested, he wasn't sad. He was pretty happy. And to be honest, Stephen didn't have very much of a chance at his trial. His preaching had so angered the Sanhedrin that they manhandled that young man out of the sacred precincts of the temple and they carted him out into the streets and they rushed him through the narrow streets of Jerusalem it was actually illegal for Jewish authorities to execute anyone unless the sentence was confirmed by the Roman government, but this mob didn't even care. In this frenzy, they took young Stephen and dragged him outside the city to the northern gate of Jerusalem where there was something called the Rock of Execution. And there they were supposed to throw him over the precipice and break his neck first, and then stone him. But they were so angry that they didn't even do that. They just immediately began casting stones at this young preacher named Stephen. And he stood back 
and he saw it all. Because he, in glee, had raced outside the city to see this preacher of a false doctrine punished. He'd been there with the mob. He stood there and watched it. It was gory and gruesome and brutal. And then somebody called him over and said, we need you to watch our coats while we're carrying out this death sentence. So here he is standing watching this young man, his same age, being brutally stoned by an angry mob. And he's standing there by a pile of coats watching it all. He didn't expect to be affected by it. He really didn't. Because he loved the law. And this guy obviously wasn't following the law because he was preaching that Jesus was the Christ and that certainly couldn't be true. He didn't expect to be affected that day. Um, but he'd never seen anyone quite like Stephen. As Stephen's body was gashed and maimed and broken, he could hear over the roar of the crowd this young man, his own age, praying out loud and clearly saying, Lord Jesus, don't lay this sin to their charge. And he heard him say, I can see Jesus. He's at the right hand of God. He heard all that, even over the roar of the crowd. And then Stephen lost consciousness. But that angry mob was so incensed that they just kept pummeling his body with rocks, heaving huge stones until all that was left was an obscenely mangled, nearly unrecognizable body. Paul was there that day. And it never, ever left him. He never could shake the memory of seeing that young man, his same age, killed for what he believed. But thankfully, duty intervened, and the authorities, the Jewish authorities, they said, hey, we need you to do a little errand for us. We know that you're very zealous of the law, and we need to stamp out this new sect. And so he was chosen as their chief agent, and he was good at it. He was successful in forcing most of the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth to either flee Jerusalem or go into hiding. He was good at it. Now, Rome didn't permit them to be killed. To Rome, this was just some kind of Jewish religious internal dispute. But he was allowed to threaten them with public flogging, and that was extremely effective. And he smirked as the courage of a few disciples collapsed and with tears flowing down their face for fear of pain and death and humiliation and the penalty on their family, he laughed as a few of them lost their faith and publicly denounced Jesus and publicly renounced their belief. But he was amazed that most of them didn't do that. Most of them prayed even while soldiers beat them and whipped them senseless at the stake. You can imagine his rage when he discovered a few months later that the followers of Jesus, who he had forced to flee from Jerusalem, they were preaching their doctrine wherever they went. You can imagine his anger when he found out that he had inadvertently been responsible for spreading this message of this 
prophet named Jesus far beyond Jerusalem into all these different towns and villages and cities. And so he stomped immediately to the high priest and the Jewish authorities and he said, I want you to give me official permission. I want you to give me some letters of authority and authorize me to go after those followers of Jesus and arrest them and bring them back here to Jerusalem where we will deal with them. Damascus was his first city of assignment, but it was on his way there that his life changed forever. On the last day of their journey, when they were almost to the city of Damascus, there was this great light, more brilliant than anything he'd ever seen, more brilliant, it seemed, than the sun itself, and it suddenly flashed from the sky. Now, his companions were affected, but he was completely overcome, and he fell to the ground. And a voice said, Saul, his Hebrew name, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he looks up into the center of this light, and it's like he sees the face of a man, but more than a man, and immediately he knew, oh my goodness, that must be Jesus. And so he asks, who art thou, Lord? And then he hears the answer come back, the answer he fears. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Paul had never met Jesus. He'd never seen Jesus. But when you touch Jesus' church, you're touching Jesus. And when you hurt Jesus' church, you're hurting Jesus. And when you oppose Jesus' church, you're opposing Jesus. He said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And Paul's response in that moment changed his life forever. Here's what he said. Lord, what do you want me to do? That response changes any life forever. That response changes everything forever. Lord, what do you want me to do? And the voice told him, I want you to proceed to Damascus, but I don't want you to go there for your original assignment I want you to go there and wait for further guidance. And it was only when that blinding light disappeared that suddenly Paul realized he was totally blind. So his men, his companions, they picked him up and gathered him together and they had to lead him into Damascus and it was there that he discovered something else. That though he was physically blind, as he sat and considered what had just happened to him, he realized, though I am physically blind, I just realized, I feel like for the very first time in my life, I can actually see. He stayed three days in the house of a Jewish man named Judas, and during that time, he refused any company. Nobody came to see him. He just needed time to think. He didn't need any food during that time. All he could think about in that moment was his terrible Awful, wicked, evil sin. All the time he thought he was a good man. All the time he thought he was actually serving God. But all he had done was he set up his own standard of goodness and because he was keeping his own standard of goodness and his own rules of righteousness, he thought he was fine. 
He had rejected Jesus because he knew that in the law, anyone who was hanged on a tree was cursed under Jewish law. But now as he sat there in that room with no company and no food and nothing but time and nothing but space to think for three days, Paul suddenly realized Jesus did hang on a tree. He was crucified. But the curse he bore wasn't his curse. It was my curse. The curse he took wasn't his. It belonged to me. He took my sin. God spoke to another disciple in Damascus. His name was Ananias. And this conversation isn't really recorded much in Scripture. It's just referred to. But you can imagine the conversation. God speaks to Ananias and said, Hey, Ananias, yeah, God, I want you to go pray for Paul. Paul, the killer of Christians. You want me to go pray for him? Yes, Ananias, go right now. You can imagine that Ananias did what we sometimes do. He started giving God all the reasons why this wasn't going to work very well. But eventually, Ananias obeyed the will of God, and he went to this house. God told him where it was, and he knocks on the door, and he goes in, and he prays for Paul. And when he prays for Paul, two incredible things happen, actually three. Number one, his eyes were immediately healed opened. It was a miracle. Paul, uh, pardon the, the expression here, I'm not trying to be funny, but Paul had never seen anything like this before. He had never, he'd heard the stories, but see, he'd never seen an actual miracle, but now he had an actual miracle. There's something about when God does something for you that nobody can take that away from you. It changes everything, and this was his miracle, but a greater miracle than that happened that day. Ananias took him and Paul was baptized in the name of the one that he had previously been persecuting. And then he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Later he would write to some church people and he would say, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. He loved that experience. Every day he had Jesus inside him. And for the rest of his life, Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want to take you back to our text, but I want to set it in context. This is 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul is writing to some people that he pastored for about 18 months as he started that church in Corinth. He was a traveling preacher, and he'd worked with Corinth for a year and a half. And he's writing back to them, and he's just saying, Brethren, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember the gospel that I preached to you because the gospel's everything to me. The gospel's what changed my life. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you received, the gospel that allows you to stand for God. It's the gospel that saved you if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. Don't believe in vain. Don't believe it for a while and then leave it. Don't believe it for a while and then let it become just kind of some part of your history. Don't believe it for a while and then let it become a religious ritual like I used to be in. No, you've got to let the gospel be alive in you every day. And here's the gospel. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Nobody taught me this. Jesus gave me this. 
Here's what I received. I was never there when Calvary happened. But God told me about it. He revealed it to me. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried in a tomb. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul preached the same message that Peter did. That because Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. That we die to ourselves and our old life in repentance and we're buried in water and baptism in the name of the one who was buried for us. And then we rise again and we receive his resurrection power. If that spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, it'll quicken your mortal body. We have that experience. Paul had that experience. And then just to anchor his friends in Corinth to the truth of that message Now he starts to go through all of the people who could stand and say, Jesus rose because I saw him. He said, he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter. Then he was seen by the 12 disciples. After that, he was seen by more than 500 brethren at once. One crowd, they all saw him. It was an imagination. Jesus was alive. And he said, most of them are still alive today. But some of them have died. And he said, after that, he was seen of James, his brother. Well, really, his half-brother. James saw him. And then all the apostles. And then this is what he says. And last of all, he was seen of me as of one born out of due time. In the Greek language in which he's writing, he uses the word ektroma. And, And it literally means like a a, a miscarriage, an abortion, an untimely birth. He said, literally, I was the last to see him. I never walked with him. I never sat with him. I never ate with him. I wasn't in Jerusalem when he was crucified. I was off in Tarsus doing my thing, building my life, making sure I had a career. I wasn't in Jerusalem when he died. But he appeared to me. And so I was like the last to see him. But I was like one born out of due time. Literally the word means I was born wounded. I didn't have the experience of the other disciples and the other apostles. And I I didn't have that experience. I came to him late. I came to him last. In the next verse he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm not, it's not even fitting that I would be called an apostle because I, me, I persecuted the church of God. I was born out of due time. I was an untimely birth. Ectroma. I was born wounded. I was born crippled. I was born with an infirmity, and the infirmity was me. It was my past. It was what I had done. It was my evil, stubborn, wicked nature. That's what I was born with. I actually fought against the church. I actually put Christians to death. I actually chased them down and hounded them until some of them denied their faith. I was an enemy of the church and an enemy of the cross of Christ, so he came to me last. I was last and I was least. I should not be part of this arrangement.
I should not be in this church. I was born with a wound. I was born with a past. When I came to God, I had so much trash in my background. I had so much junk in my head. I really shouldn't be here. But I thank God that Jesus was so merciful that he appeared to me last and least. And today I preach the gospel. I was born last and least. I was born wounded. And you hear it in Paul's epistles. His first epistle that he writes is actually Galatians, and he starts that by saying, Paul, an apostle, and then he continues. But you give him a couple, three years, and when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. And you give him a few more years, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says to them, after a few more years of serving God and preaching the gospel and building the church and realizing I shouldn't be here, I don't deserve this. This is all God. This is not me. This is all mercy. This is not me. This is all grace. This is not me. And after a few more years, he writes to the Ephesians and he says, I am less than the least of all the saints. Your preacher, your pastor, your apostle, your missionary, I'm less than the least of all the saints. I came to this wounded. I didn't come to this with any pedigree or any credentials. I thought I had them, but they didn't matter to God. I came into this thing wounded, an untimely birth, born last and least. By the time he gets to the end of his life and he's sitting in a Roman prison and he's writing a letter to his young son in the faith named Timothy, he says to Timothy, not I'm an apostle, not I'm the least of the apostles. Not even I'm the least of all the saints. No, he says, God came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Timothy, I know I'm your father in the gospel and I know I've gone on missionary journeys and I know we've started churches and I know I've been a pastor to thousands and a missionary to thousands. I know all that, but Timothy, let me tell you something. I was born wounded. God came into this world to save sinners, and I was the worst one. I persecuted the church of the living God. He continues in verse 10, and he says to the Corinthians, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I couldn't have got myself here. I couldn't have lifted myself up. I couldn't have delivered myself or helped myself or saved myself. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And when God gave me this grace, the grace which was bestowed upon me, God didn't give this to me in vain. He said, I labored more abundantly than they all. I worked harder at this. I traveled more. I pushed more. I preached more. I labored more. I prayed more than all the apostles. But that's not to puff me up. No, that's because I didn't have what they had. I didn't have the head start that they had. I came last and least, and I was born wounded, so it's not any credit to me. I just had to scramble to make up for lost time. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God which was with me. I shouldn't have anything. I shouldn't be anything because I was born wounded. But anything I do, anything I have, and anything I am is because of the grace of God. <laughs> Can I tell you, Paul's not the only one that feels like that. 
There's a host of people in this room that would say, when I came to Jesus, I came wounded. I have no pedigree in Pentecost. I have no degree in theology. I'm not all that good or all that righteous and my family wasn't all that together and I got a lot of dysfunction and you know what else? I got a lot of bad memories. I was born into this thing wounded. I messed up. In fact, there was a time that I knew better but I persecuted. I worked against the gospel and the church of God. I was bad. I was out there. I didn't know which way was up but let me tell you, although I've been born wounded, the grace of God stepped into my life and I've had to scramble to kind of catch up. I look at other people it looks so easy for them. They've been part of the church for so long it feels like they just fit. I'm not even sure that I fit but let me tell you something. The grace of God that was poured out on me, God's not going to waste that grace on me. If I have to scramble, if I have to pray extra, if I have to do more, if I have to live more committed, I'm going to do it because I'm not going to let God waste his grace. Not for me. I was born wounded. But you know what? Jesus was born wounded too. Jesus took on weakness so we could take on strength. Jesus took on a human nature so we could take on a divine nature. Jesus took on death itself so we could have this eternal life that we have. I know you're all waiting to get to heaven so you can celebrate that you've got eternal life. That is not how this works. Christianity is not life after death. Christianity is life instead of death. You have eternal life in you right now. Heaven is not some big blip on the radar. Heaven is just a transition from living for God here to living for God there. From worshiping God here to worshiping God there. It's just going to be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and you're going to be doing the same thing you're doing now just on streets of gold. Jesus was born wounded too. That gives me comfort. I was born unwillingly wounded. He was born willingly wounded. Paul wrote these words. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He had every right He walked through heaven. It was his. But he took a wound on himself. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion, in the the form of a man, God humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You talk about a wound. Jesus was born wounded so he could identify with all of us who were born wounded. But that is not the end of his story. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name 
of Jesus. You can do it now or you can do it at judgment. We just have chosen to do it now. But someday, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have just chosen that we're going to start that ceremony right now. We're going to start that worship service right now. We're going to start that allegiance right now. Someday, every tongue is going to have to confess. We don't have to. We get to. Someday, every knee will have to bow. We don't have to. We get to. So we do it now in anticipation of then. You see, the wound wasn't the end of his story. And can I tell you, the wound isn't the end of your story either. He was born wounded so that you and I who were born wounded could be healed. I was studying for this and I wasn't expecting to go here, but you know, you get reading the Bible and there's all kinds of little rabbit trails. And the minor prophets, this came to mind. The minor prophets, who by the way said some pretty major things. Micah said this, you rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I'm getting back up. I may have some wounds. Some of them might be self-imposed. Some of them might be stupid things that I did in my past. And I may have some wounds. But you listen to me. Although sometimes my wounds trip me up. And sometimes my wounds bring back some terrible memories. And some flashbacks of sin and failure. And all kinds of darkness. You let me tell you something enemy. Even when I fall down. I am getting back up. I might have been born wounded. But I'm dying healed. I might have come into this wounded, but by the time I go to heaven, God is going to redeem every part of me. I don't have a glorified body yet, but someday I'm going to have a glorified body. Nahum said this. I just want one phrase of this. Put it on the screen for me. This is the prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verse 9. You guys got it? Where are we? Oh, we got one screen out. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Look at this. Look at this. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Now that is wonderful news. That's the principle of, uh, of Scripture. Affliction shall not rise up the second time, but we just read in Micah, when I fall, I will rise up. Let me tell you something about life. I know you got wounds. I know you got hurts. I know you've got a past, failures, disappointments, and I know a lot of it isn't even your fault. Other people did it to you. But let me tell you something. All you've got to do is get up just one more time than your affliction gets up and you're going to be just fine. Your affliction, if it gets up 10 times, you get up 11 times. If your affliction gets up seven times, you get up eight times. You only got to get up one more time than your affliction gets up. So don't give up, get up. Don't just sit there and let the devil pummel you and let your past haunt you. You see, you might have been born wounded, but we are going to die healed. We are going going to heaven where there's no more sickness or pain or dysfunction or disappointment. That's our destiny. I may have been born wounded, but when I go to heaven, everything's healed. Paul fills the New Testament with epistles, with doctrine, with letters, with teaching, 
But most of all, he fills it with his testimony. He tells it three times in the book of Acts. 30 years later, he still remembers that young man, his same age, dying. He tells about it. He tells how he was impacted forever. And he never fails to mention that I came into this with a wound. I'm not so great. I'm not so awesome. I don't have everything together. I was born wounded. But Jesus welcomed me when I was wounded. And I learned something as I began to write my epistles. And I learned something as I began to plant churches and do missionary journeys. And I learned something, he said, that I want to share with all of you. That Jesus came into this world and willingly was born wounded. So he could identify with all of us that were born wounded. And that, brothers and sisters, is the real meaning of Christmas. Christmas is wonderful. But Christmas is about God taking on a wound. So those of us who already had wounds could be healed. Would you just take a moment, church, and would you express some kind of great gratitude to God for doing that? for us. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jesus. Kathy, come on back, would you, and help me? <clears throat> I love you, Jesus. I worship you, God. I worship you, God. <sighs> give you praise, Jesus. I give you praise, Jesus. I was in Guatemala this week and had a wonderful seminar with all the ministers and Bible school teachers and leaders there. Brother Brad Thompson, our phenomenal missionary, he and I were driving around in his car on Friday. And Guatemala is kind of a dichotomy. There's this wonderful modern part of Guatemala, but then there's such poverty. And you drive through traffic, always traffic in Guatemala City, and you drive through traffic and these misshapen, misformed, crippled up people, beggars, in the middle of the traffic, motorbikes and cars moving along and they're sitting right in the middle of the street you see them and it just almost catches in your throat one little guy he can't stand up he's bent over like this and his head's all misshapen and he's got a little cup on the end of a stick hoping for a coin from somebody driving by humanity is wounded and crippled and broken and we see something like that and it it just brings a lump to your throat to think that somebody could be so unfortunate. In this time of the year, we think of people that are less fortunate than us. Humanity is way worse off than what you could see in a crippling infirmity. We've got spiritual crippling infirmities. People that look like they got it all together and they don't have to beg for money. I got a good job and a nice home, but 
there's hurt and pain and anger issues and there's conflict and there's fears. They're wounded. And we have the message that fixes everything. And the message, brothers and sisters, is not us because we've been wounded too. The message is not come to this building because this is just a building. The message isn't join our religion or join our congregation. The message is you got to meet this Jesus. That's the message. And the great thing about that message is before anybody's ever walked in the door of 71 Downing Street, you can share that message with him in a grocery store, in an office building, in a college classroom, in a coffee shop. The message isn't us. The message has always been and will always be him. It always has been. He is, like they sang tonight, the center of it all. And he took on this wound for all of you that were born wounded. We look nice. We're church people. We kind of get fixed up and get in the car and come to church. But you don't have to hide your wound from him. He came to heal it, to fix it, to make it new. Would you lift up your hands and would you close your eyes and I just want to pray and we'll worship a bit. Church, would you just engage with the presence of God right now? There's something beautiful in this service and I'm done preaching. But would you just engage with God's spirit for a moment? Lord Jesus, I know what you laid on my heart this week and I'm thankful that you gave me an opportunity to share it. And God, I know beyond any doubt that there are people in this room that have been wounded. I know there are people in this room that have struggles and I know there are people in this room that even this time of year, which is so wonderful and happy and joyful, it's difficult for them because of multiple things. And uh, yet they still made the effort to be here tonight. And I just know you want to touch somebody tonight. I just know you want to heal somebody's emotions tonight. I, I just know you want to give somebody a a miracle in their life, in their spirit, in their heart. I thank you for that. I believe that just as sure as I'm standing here. And so right now, Jesus, I invite you to move by your spirit in this place. And the light that shone on Saul, would you let that kind of a revelation shine on somebody tonight? I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Church, I wish you would let your praise out. We're being real kind of calm and sedate. I, I, I don't need that right now. I need you to let out this praise to this one who paid so much and gave so much and came so far to be so much to all of us. Thank you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. Oh, my. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
It's a beautiful old song. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Surely he bore our sorrows and by his stripes we are healed. Would you stand right now with Pastor? And uh, could I just ask if you would just lift your hands one more time? I, I know we're in and out of prayer all through service, but right now it's very, very critical. Would you lift your hands and would you begin to pray? We're going to come to the altar in just a second, but we just need to seed the atmosphere right now with our prayer. Huh. You don't have to hide from Jesus. You can hide all your wounds and all your hurts from us. That's okay. Nobody's offended at that because we all kind of try to do that. But you do not have to hide them from Jesus. He would love to touch you tonight. He would love to heal you tonight. He'd love to move in your life in such a powerful way tonight. Oh, church, just lift that up, please. Would you do that? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you. There we go. There we go. That's better. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I may have been born last and least in this, Jesus, but I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I may have hang-ups and I may have issues and problems, but God, I'm just thankful to be here. I'm just thankful to be here. Why don't we do this? Would you connect with a couple of friends on either side and just would you begin to pray right now for somebody near you? Let's, let's do that right now. Let's do that first. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Lord God, let your healing virtue flow through here. I'll tell you what, while we're praying about wounds, God can heal physical situations too. There are some people in this building that need a definite miracle of healing in their body. And while the church is praying, while the church is praying, healing doesn't just flow to your mind and your memory and your emotions and your heart. Healing can flow to your body. Healing can flow to your home right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, let your power flow. Let your healing flow. Let your deliverance be here. Hurts and disappointments and heartache. and God, I pray that you'd move in such a way that you'd touch lives today. Touch homes right now. Touch homes right now. Family members that aren't even here, maybe aren't even interested in being here. God, you, you can do something that's so powerful right now. I welcome you to do that. I welcome you to do that. I welcome you to do that, Jesus.
Church, could I ask everybody if you'd just take that familiar walk and just step out of where you're standing and let's all just come to the front. Let's close. We're, we're early tonight. We're okay. And when you get here, just begin to pray. Let's let God move. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, he was wounded for our transgressions. Oh, he was bruised for our